Alrighty, guys. Great conversation today with uh, Kelly Lannan, uh, who's a real estate developer up in Phoenix, has an awesome substack called Bitcoin Urbanism. Highly encourage you to go check it out. Uh, yeah, welcome to Tucson Bitcoin Podcast. Today we're talking about how real estate is a giant Ponzi scheme and uh, how Bitcoin can lead to sustainable cities. I got into Bitcoin because I saw that good money addresses a lot of the issues that we see in society. I, I care a lot about unfair and extreme wealth inequality. I care about pension crisis that we're seeing right now, uh, how old people can't retire, uh, how normal people are just broke, you know, and just drowning in debt. You know, th th those are the reasons why I got into it. And uh, it's really interesting hearing uh, Kelly's perspective on how sound money changes the game uh, when it comes to building developments because instead of building a bunch of stuff that we don't need because we need the government to collect fees on it to pay for infrastructure that they can't afford to maintain because they spend their money so recklessly we we move into a world where we build stuff that is actually of high quality and that that people want and need instead of just you know what is resulting from easy money like we see now so yeah this is a great conversation i learned a lot from kelly and i hope you enjoy it as well all righty we're recording good to have you on kelly glad to be here thank you for inviting me sure um so what is it that you do in real estate so i am a real estate developer so what i do um we work in i work in a family office uh, my dad's been doing it for about 35 years. So we buy land, raw land, or, uh, you know, land with buildings on it. And what we do is we try to figure out um, how many apartments or condos or single family homes can we put on this dirt. And then we go through the process. So we go to the city and say, this is what we'd like to do. Um, what requirements do we need to meet? And then from there, we draft all the plans uh, from all the consultants and stuff that we hire. And then we take it back to the city, go through the process and eventually, uh, you know, they'll approve it. And then we also build everything that we design. So uh, we will build our apartments or condos and uh, lease them out to people and then we sell it off. So we do that, rinse and repeat um, and they've been doing it for quite some time, so. That, that must be, that sounds like a really uh, uh, all-encompassing job just to, to do it. That's a lot to handle, both uh, buying the real estate and, and building and developing. Yeah, yeah, it certainly can be. So we're, we're essentially a, a one-stop shop. A lot of developers, um, you know, will sub out most of the responsibilities to other people, especially when it comes to uh, the construction side of things. But... Um, the nice thing about being a one-stop shop is that we can control a lot more of the details. Um, and especially in construction, the details are what kill you. Um, so we can control how the plans turn out from the architects or the civil engineers. Um, basically, you know, if we, if we know that, uh, you know, putting a storage, a water storage underground for stormwater is better in this situation and in this location than doing it above ground, you know, then those are the things that we can kind of control. Um, and then when it comes to the construction side, you know, we can control uh, 
the essentially the sound that goes between the units. So if you're building apartments, the number one reason people move out is because of too much sound. You know, nobody likes to hear their neighbor. So uh, we do a lot of that stuff and then we manage the construction ourselves to basically be the quality that we want. So we've built uh, right around 5,000 condominium units in the lifespan of uh, my dad's career. So, you know, we have our list of things that are gotta haves for consumers that we know uh, that they like and that they'll pay for. So that allows us to control the process from beginning to end to make sure that we basically meet uh, the market's needs and that uh, people don't try to cut corners, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, my, my mentors uh, has a tiling business and uh, just the thought of, of handling all of it just seemed from, from hearing him talk. I mean, that, that in and of itself is quite a bit to deal with. So it's pretty impressive. Um, but yeah. So what the heck is going on in the real estate market right now? I think a lot of people are wondering that. Well, um, this is the classic case of what cheap debt will do. So uh, most real estate is priced in terms of the cost of the debt that you get to buy it. So let's say that you wanted to buy a house, right? I think the median price for a house, at least in Arizona right now, is probably for a new house is going to be about $375,000. So if you're just going to pay cash for it, you know, you could pay the $375,000. But if you wanted to get like a 30-year federally insured uh, mortgage, which is like your typical FHA loan, um, you know, the cost of the house is going to be, or I guess what you can afford to pay is equivalent to what you can afford to pay per month. So your budget is not determined by the maximum cost of the house. It's determined by what you can afford on a monthly basis. So if you can only afford to pay $1,000 a month for your mortgage, and rates are, you know, 10%, your budget is going to be much smaller than it would be now when rates are two and I think it's like 2.72 the last time I looked. Um, so your budget gets bigger as rates go lower. Um, so in the housing market, that's kind of what's happening. Now, on top of that, you've got an issue where all these lockdown states, the people that can move are moving. Um, um, and that's, that's kind of it for the residential market. But when you get to the commercial, industrial, stuff like that, it's the same deal. You know, if I build an apartment and the operating income is, you know, $100,000, you know, it's going to trade at what's called five cap. So that's $100,000 divided by um, 0 0.05. And that gives you 5 million. So people are bidding down the cap rates on property just to have a stream of income, right? You know, because if you go out and you're trying to buy like a government bond or, you know, T-bills and all the stuff, you're, you're not really making any money. So investors are forced to um, uh, stretch for yield and property is a really easy asset class to kind of do that with just because um, it's more or less straightforward. You can, you can uh, guess your expenses with reasonable accuracy, especially if you've been in the business, you know what you should be paying or shouldn't be paying 
um, you know, and cleaning fees or landscape or what your turnover is in an apartment, uh, stuff like that. Or if you're uh, in offices, what your TI should be, what you should be getting back for those, um, stuff like that. So the, the, there's not a whole lot of invention and new ideas going on in that kind of space. So people basically just outbid each other and they're really, you know, they're, they're willing to take less returns um, just knowing that they have, you know, a piece of real estate. So. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like people are fleeing cash in any way that they can. And yeah, kind of what you described is the philosophy of the average American is it's not about the overall cost of something. It's about the monthly payment of it. And that's what people are thinking about when they're doing it. I, um, I made the mistake of, of financing a car. Um, well, it, it might not have been a mistake because it allowed me to, to buy Bitcoin and, and, and sit on it instead of putting all the cash down. But um, I get uh, letters from uh, different creditors saying, you know, we'll refinance your car uh, for like almost the same interest rate. We'll just elongate the payments. Um, and uh, it'll lower your monthly. And I, I think like they get away with that because so many people are worried about that monthly payment rather than the overall cost of things. Um, yep. Yeah. Yep. And I would agree. And I, you know, I did the same thing. I just went through the process of buying a truck and uh, I just buy used vehicles, just, you know, far, having a farm and a ranch and doing construction, you know, I don't need to show up to the job site in a, in a new vehicle, but yeah, they, they, uh, they basically only give you, you know, 60, 72 or 84 months. And the idea is just, they do that so they can get um, uh, lower interest or excuse me, lower payment totals. And uh, that's basically what people do. They just buy what they can afford. Um, you know, if you're saving money and buy, you know, stacking sats, that's, uh, that's the way to go because number go up. But um, yeah, it's uh, in, in the wacky fiat world we live in, you know, the lower rates go. Um, the, I guess the higher the craziness. So, yeah, yeah. Got to buy used vehicles until at least 20, 30, 20, 40, and then we can get cash in for our Lambos. That's right. I'm looking forward to the, uh, the 2030 Lambo. I don't think those will have wheels though. I'm hoping hyper Bitcoinization is really going to, uh, up the ante here. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So um, you have a great Substack uh, called Bitcoin Urbanization. Um, so what what does that mean? So uh, Bitcoin urbanism is, I guess, my attempt to see what uh, see what and how cities will develop given uh, a sound monetary environment. So you know how how does the planning work? You know, architecture, the building materials, kind of all the stuff that goes into the process today, uh, which is a highly regulated bureaucratic process, you know, how, how does that work when you have sound money? Um, I'm kind of of the opinion that over time, the current development process of going through the city zoning, all this other stuff is really very extractive in terms of uh, cost. So like the Home Builders Association put out a report that estimates I think it was like 32 or 31% of the cost of an over, the overall cost of a home when people buy it is attributed to government process. Hmm. 
Who would have thought? Yeah, it's been it's been a very long road, you know, a hundred year road to get to that number. But um, having experienced it for myself, I I don't doubt it. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think people realize how expensive um, it is uh, to be in a relationship with our government right now. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, and it's also for property development is mostly just local unless you're dealing uh with wetlands the coastline you know you're not dealing too much with uh federal regulations um unless you know the epa declares your land i don't know whatever nonsense that they come up with um you know you don't really have to deal with it too much but a lot of times it's just local expenses um some states are also better than others arizona is very uh, development friendly, whereas somewhere like Pennsylvania, um, I don't know how they build anything because it has to all go through the state. So um, it comes down to cost in, you know, submitting plans, and a lot of it is time. Um, you know, if you were really good pre-COVID, you could probably have a, a an apartment you know, I do sub 50 unit stuff. So you could probably have a project like mine into the city and then out with approvals in six months. And that would be um, equivalent to the stars aligning and you're not having issues really whatsoever. Today, that's probably closer to almost double. Um, so any, anywhere from 11 to 15 months, I would say now is kind of the normal. Uh, the normal deal. And that's, that's just to have a site that you want to build something on, you know, and then you start the process until it's finally approved with the city. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, I think one of the greatest things that could ever happen is for people to be forced to pay all their taxes at once instead of, uh, um, like their income taxes specifically, instead of uh, having little bits taken out of their paycheck so that they can realize how much is being taken from them. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, it's when you really dive into it, it's pretty wild, um, just the amount of waste that, that goes into uh, government and um, it is a bummer. Um, and that's one of the things that's interesting about Bitcoin. So wh when did you get into Bitcoin? Uh, I would say I got into it. Well, originally, um, I graduated college in 2011. And that was uh, in May, May of 2011. That was right before Bitcoin ran up from 11 to $32. So I had just blown all of my uh, college graduation funds on a brand new gaming PC. And I thought I would join in on uh, the Bitcoin fund. And so I downloaded the uh, course off my computer here in one of my you know, backup hard drives. It's been copied like eight times since then. But uh, uh, turn it on mining. You have no idea what I was doing, no programming or any. And I, I must not have been doing it right because I didn't get anything. And, um, um, but what I did get was a $650 bill from my, uh, my power utility, which at the time I couldn't afford. And uh, I kind of rage quit. 
So that was my first experience. And then uh, I got back into it, I would say late 2016, early 2017. And uh, I hopped on uh, Twitter, which at the time was crypto Twitter. It wasn't really Bitcoin Twitter. And um, kind of just laid around, you know, reading stuff as it was coming along. It really didn't hit until uh, the Bitcoin standard, when I read the Bitcoin standard, that kind of pulled everything together. I mean, I'd always been around um, Austrian economics just through the Mises Daily emails, you know, because they would send out uh, an email with like three, three articles. And, you know, I'd always read that stuff, but I never really picked up human action because quite frankly, it's a daunting, you know, three inch tome to, uh, to grab. But um, yeah, so that was kind of how I got I guess back into it. Um, and I think with most Bitcoiners, I kind of had the same thing where you, you shit coin for a little bit, you know, got to touch the, the hot pan. And then, uh, yeah, it was just one article after that, one article after the, the next rather, and some podcasts. And here I am, a toxic maximalist. Yeah, that, that term toxic maximalist is just such a bad one. Um, you know, it, I think it's it's a term uh, that was created, I think, by scammers and is perpetuated by people that do, just don't understand. Um, man, well, I think I, that was uh, that was Vitalik uh, Buterin who uh, who dubbed us, you know, that if I could say that. But um, always always uh, adopting stuff from your enemies to uh, make yourself stronger. Just like the old saying that, you know, not, there's no bad news for Bitcoin. Nothing's bad for Bitcoin. So, yeah. Yeah. The scammer in chief himself. Um, so yeah, you, you adopt uh, um, titles or, or names from, from your enemies. So you, you said that a, a blue check Mark uh, did a drop by troll on Bitcoin urbanism. Um, what, what happened there? Um, so I, I was, uh, it was totally unrelated at, uh, I think in a tweet, um, I followed a, like the, he's a legendary planner from Toronto. He was the one who basically revised, uh, Toronto. I'm drawing a blank on his name right now, but somebody on his staff, uh, an article basically saying that, um, you know, planning needed to give its whiteness and that, um, you know, uh, white planning was the reason for all the social ills in minority neighborhoods and that it was totally unequal and all this other stuff. And I, I kind of just said, you know, that's, that's just a bunch of postmodern, you know, garbage. Like this has nothing to do with anything. Um, and uh, then another guy jumped in who worked, I don't know if he worked for the city of San Francisco but um, I don't think he said something very pleasant to me. So I, I responded in kind, um, kind of trolling him. And then the guy who he said, uh, Bitcoin urbanist gonna Bitcoin urbanist. And um, I was like, oh, wow, that's actually pretty good. Um, Cause I had been thinking about these ideas for uh, some time, basically since uh, kind of since 2017, but I didn't really have a coherent um, message to put together. So anyway, so he, he ended up being, uh, he does some sort of math with traffic and he went to uh, Arizona state. So I told him thanks and, you know, hand wave and that was pretty much it. So 
Bitcoin urbanism was born on, you know, a blue check mark driving by and, you know, dropping a good name. So I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a funny story. Um, yeah. As far as like central planning, um, the, the central planners sure were successful in segregating Chicago and, and ruining the city, you know, with the, with the projects. Um, mm-hmm. That's something where yep, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the legacy of Robert Moses um, lives on in its destructive ability to ruin things even today. Um, so it's uh, pretty, pretty fascinating that that stuff, that stuff even occurred, but that kind of plays into, you know, how, how we got to where we are today and, um, you know, how it changed basically from, I guess now like a hundred years ago. So how things used to be and how they are now, it's, uh, it's shocking that, you know, that it even works. So, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's a debate, you know, with the entire, uh, all of society being built on top of a giant Ponzi scheme. The question is like, when and if it'll break. And I was talking with some people. I mean, I personally, I don't, I don't know a ton about real estate, but I have trouble seeing home values really uh, falling in the near future as long as interest rates are at, at zero. Um, and I mean, it, it seems like they're even willing, you know, if things were to slow down to go to negative, if they, um, I, I just don't ever see those going up again and then as they continue to print money um it just inflates the asset values so it's uh yeah i mean it is a question of like if and when it will break for sure well and it's um the the big thing that's happened especially since um the the march you know crash in 2020 is that how much the fed has been buying the mortgage-backed securities so the current housing boom is basically just being driven by the Fed. Um, they promised uh, to buy, I think it was like one, one and a quarter trillion, you know, MBS over, you know, whatever the course of the year. And that's set to run out at the pace that they're going. I think um, it's February, so probably sometime in April or May. And I, I don't doubt that they read the program and just keep buying because it's, they're, they're the only ones buying and they're the ones, uh, the Fed is the reason why, you know, the 30 year rates are so low. Even some of the, you know, the other rates, the 15 years, the jumbo loan stuff, a lot of that's being brought down just because, uh, you know, the Fed's, the Fed's out there buying up all the federally insured mortgages and, you know, uh, keeping the party going, I guess. Yeah, it's, oh man. You know, a lot of the people have trouble really putting this together and understanding why this is so problematic uh, for the average person. Um, and I, I like to try and break things down in, in simple terms. So, you know, if home values keep on going up, you know, people won't be able to afford homes um, or like normal people won't. Uh, they'll be in debt forever. And uh, it's, I mean, it, it, it's pretty incredible. So like, you know, your average person our age um, gets out of school with a tremendous amount of student debt if they go to school, finance a car, you know, 
job markets is sucking right now and probably will continue to. Um, and uh, then they go and like buy a house and they're just like swimming in endless amounts of debt. And it's just like, I mean, at, at that point, rent-a-center makes sense of like going and financing your, your couch or, or your TV instead of buying it um, because, you know, <laughs> it's just one bad decision after another. But um, a lot of people don't understand why that's so problematic. You know, it's um, what, what I'm seeing being taken away from people is, is their voice um, because you know, when, when you're in large amounts of debt like that, you are beholden to other people. You have, you just don't have any sort of self-sovereignty, um, you know, because you have to bend the knee, you know, every, to, to your lenders pretty much. And, uh, I mean, that's problematic. I mean, you know, we supposedly live in a representative democracy where the government is like accountable to its people, but, you know, if the people have no, like, ability or no voice then you know where's the accountability at and i yeah i mean i I just see that as super problematic um and why bitcoin is so important but that makes slaves of us all yeah i mean that's why we're seeing conversations about ubi right now like man It'd be funny to go back like 20 years and, and tell people that like UBI was going to be a serious consideration. I, I don't even know if it existed as that name back then. I think it was, uh, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of wordplay. It was, you know, giving people money. Um, that's, you know, UBI is synonymous with, you know, something that, you know, that you deserve under the circumstances. Um, but, you know, Government, uh, the chief, uh, the chief problem creator, and the chief problem solver. They just happen to create more problems that they can solve to create new problems. So, um, I see that as, uh, you know, with the lockdowns and all the other silliness that's going on, this is not, not something that needed to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how do you see the real estate market under a Bitcoin standard? Like, how is that different? Well, so um, right now, I guess to draw on our, our conversation about like, you know, buying these houses that are going up in value and the Fed's buying all the debt. So a lot of times uh, real estate is very reactive to demand. Um, there is speculative activity. So if I, you know, wanted to just buy land to build a house, just just on a whim, you know, that's hopefully somebody will buy it when I'm done, you know, that would be a speculative activity in that sense. But a lot of times in real estate um, in any kind of real estate, really, it's a poll process. So um, if people see the numbers uh, going in a direction that they like, so if growth is going up or uh, home prices are going up. New people are moving to, uh, let's say, Phoenix. We'll just keep it Phoenix as an example city. That developers, uh, whether uh, small, private, corporate, you know, whatever flavor that they come in, will then take activity to buy land and go through the entitlement process with the city and draw up construction documents, all that stuff. That's a very, it's a very long and expensive process. So um, as an activity, 
you're not going to get involved in it, you know, knowing that it's very expensive. And if, if something changes midway through the process, you're going to be out all your money. So, you know, if I uh, buy, you know, a two acre site, you know, it's going to take me now that I know it's going to take me approximately a year to get my uh, desired plans through the city. So if I have to tie up the property for a year, you know, then the seller has to wait to be paid basically until I can get an approved design for the site. You know, that's, that's uh, for uh, even a small operation like, uh, like ours, that's hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, and money out the door that's never coming back. And, um, you know, it's a very expensive activity to do, not knowing what's going on. But in the situation like what we have now, um, there's no real reason not to do it, assuming that you can get the end. Um, so, you know, under, under the, the fiat credit standard, um, everything is just financed, right? So the end user, uh, in this case, would say, well, we're building a home or a subdivision of homes. We know that that end user has to take on debt in order to buy the house because they can't afford it with cash. At least it's something like for new for new buyers, I think it's like 90 plus percent get a loan in order to buy it. So me as the developer, I know that. So I'm not going to take on the risk to build out a subdivision unless I know that everybody can get a mortgage at the end of the day, right? Because that's that's your cash flows. That's how you get your money to come in. You can start, you know, um, uh, well, you can continue to pay the interest on your loans, your construction loans, uh, return money to investors, stuff like that. So at the end of the day, you're going to play ball as best you can, especially with government authorities and in the design process, as long as whatever you get through that process, the numbers work at the end. So if I want to build 100 houses and I go and I present 100 houses and after the, the city uh, makes their adjustments and tells me I can't do this, can't do that, we want this here, yada, yada, yada. Let's say I'm left with like 75 houses. So if I go back to my Excel sheet or the drawing board, so to speak, and those 75 houses pencil, then I'll do the deal, even though you know I just lost 25. But let's say that it came back at 60 and I can't do the deal. It's like, well... You know, then you make that phone call and you move on. But if you're in this kind of environment where like, for example, Phoenix home prices on average are up 14% over the last year, um, you know, you're going to take the risk that maybe 60 houses work and then you go through with it. Um, and then, you know, on the other side, cities are also gonna be, um, you know, I guess my experience is only with Phoenix area cities. So I don't wanna speak for, the whole country because obviously it'll be different but they're going to be more prone to uh, push those plans through especially in a hot market so that they can collect all the fees and stuff like that because um, you know it's, it's something um, that i've noted about on uh, on the sub stack um, they need the money because they can't afford the infrastructure that they already have and that's that's from a long a long train of uh, government regulations uh, that date back all the way to the Great Depression um, when, you know, this whole mess started. So um, under a sound money 
dollars and monetary standard, some like Bitcoin, you know, I'm thinking that we were to like a de uh, traditional development um, pattern. So that's thinking like um, a good example is like uh, Manhattan. So the West Village uh, is, is probably one of my favorite neighborhoods to be in. You know, it's like when you go to um, cities in the Midwest or the South, older cities where you go to a main street and you can tell, like they all look the same, right? The buildings are 20 to 25 feet wide. Maybe they're two or three stories tall, brick, you know, some marble, all that. The idea is, you know, they built this way for a reason. And why did they do it? Because it's everywhere. So the idea must have worked everywhere. Um, and Bitcoin urbanism is basically an exploration of if that old center or not old center, I guess if Main Street was built that way on a gold standard and we build suburbia on a fiat standard, you know, how do we get back from suburbia to a traditional development pattern with sound money? So that's what I uh, am writing about, thinking through and trying to figure out. Makes sense. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting to think about. Um, I think like the general consensus is that uh, under a Bitcoin standard, inflation wouldn't be such an issue, and that there'd be higher quality products because people wouldn't be making things just um, inexpensively. Kind of like what you're describing, because um, like. You know the houses that you're describing are well built compared to, um, you know, going out into the suburbs and seeing all the, uh, you know, cheap cookie cutter houses that um, are not very well built in comparison. Um, so, yeah, it, so the, the I would say that the house the houses that were built pre, um, I would say pre, well, definitely pre Great Depression, but even before you know World War One. Um, that those houses are still like around today. I mean, they may be pretty dilapidated, but you know, if people were taking care of them, like they're still around and they still function. Uh, you can replace, you know, the floors and uh, the plaster, the plaster walls with drywall and all that stuff now, but like the, the bones of the house ought to still be good. Um, and when you are building stuff today, that's not necessarily the case. You know, it's stick framing, stucco. It's a very simple process compared to, you know, what they used to do. Like if you had, uh, you know, brick or stone house, that's not going to go anywhere, right? Um, unlike, you know, the stuff that gets built today, which is, in my mind, part of the institution effect, which is, a, a symptom of inflation, you know, over time, if you're not able to, you know, if the, if the price of brick goes up, you know, 5% over time and wood, which is much uh, more, I guess, readily available, you know, chop down a tree, put it through uh, a, uh, oh my goodness, a lumber mill, you know, dry it, move on. And a lot of times it's a much easier, material to work with it's much faster to build you know a wall with two by fours than it is to lay bricks for you know two days so it's all about 
how fast can you do it and how cheaply so yeah i i've been on a clubhouse quite a bit recently listening to people talk about that and guy swan's been on there just like screaming about it not not literally but he's um you know pretty pretty uh, emotional about it just about all the useless crap that's being produced um and it, it it's really interesting like time preference is a big thing so like a country like germany even though they're under a fiat standard has uh generally a, a lower time preference people are savers there and that's you know they they got i think the people got really upset about when they went to negative interest rates over there um and if you look at like german made goods there's so much better um and in a lot of a lot of ways like i mean their clocks their their cars um stuff like that and uh um it, it really is interesting to think about that just how how time preference really changes things um but yeah um what what are some like really have you seen bitcoin um entering in the conversation around real estate at all uh i would say no um i made a con i made a, a comment on twitter the other day saying that uh who was it i think maybe francis made a comment about the Bitcoin real estate bubble popping and a rotation into Bitcoin. But in my experience, I don't think that's going to happen. My, I would like to politely that um, real estate is a very traditional finance kind of sect almost because it depends so heavily on the fiat standard, right? You need to have all of this cheap credit in order for prices even just to be maintained. And in my experience, a lot of people who are in real estate simply will be like the second to last people to buy or understand Bitcoin next to central bankers. Um, that's kind of been my experience. I've, I've definitely talked about it. There's no way that I haven't, you know, said something to lots of different people. And, you know, with the, uh, the environment that I grew in with all the the people that we, that I know personally that have done real estate that are, I guess, very wealthy, very active and own lots of it. They don't want anything to do with it. I don't think that's intuitively knowing that, you know, that they're on a fiat standard and that they depend on cheap credit to them. It's, it's more, I understand that rates are getting better. So therefore I'm able to cash out on more equity as I go along in time. But eventually like the, that musical, that music stops. So um, I guess with my my Substack, I'm trying to get that out there. Uh, I make a joke that eventually my dad will subscribe maybe after a thousand posts, but I'll see if I can do it. But for the most part, no, I don't think a lot of people in real estate really understand it. I'm sure, uh, I, look, I've had uh, real estate agents and stuff like that, or people like that reach out to me, but developers, no, no, haven't met any, haven't met any, haven't talked to any. Uh, a lot of it is just ignorance or was it ignorance is bliss. So that's been, that's been my experience. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely like an industry that benefits the most from, um, 
the fiat standard, it sounds like. And so they'll be the last to adopt it. I, I've got some buddies that that write mortgages and on occasion I'll, I'll shill Bitcoin to them and they look at me like I'm from space. So I totally get that. And then I look at them like those guys from uh, uh, the big short that were in Florida. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's aptly put because those guys were uh, mortgage brokers. Um, so yeah, I, I def I 100% agree. Their real estate, as far as being close to the spigot for the cancel on effect, is probably right up there next to the bankers who are getting the money. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times the real estate developments, especially the large ones, master plan communities, things like that, skyscrapers, those require, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in funding, usually. So you've got to go to where the money is. And in that case, you know, you're going to Wall Street. I get uh, emails and updates from banks all the time from Wall Street about different deals going on around town. And, you know, that's, it is what it is. So yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, I, I sometimes, like, when I'm walking through Chicago, I'll just look up at these gigantic buildings and uh, just I, I'm just astounded by it. Like all all the raw materials it took to, and when you just have it all condensed together, it's like how much land was displaced to create this monstrosity, and how many people were involved, and and how much. Uh, money did it take to just construct this it's interesting that we're kind of moving away from that um that was something i was really that that michael saylor's been talking about a lot is how we're moving more to a remote um work environment and how like the big cities are kind of um declining and um an extent um but yeah uh, what's your take on tesla and buying bitcoin I would like to say that I was surprised, but I think uh, our boy Sailor, orange pilled Musk, you know, way back. What, how long ago was their exchange? Was it like a month and a half ago? It was in December, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I just saw yeah, it. I, yeah. December 20th. I just saw a screenshot of it. Yeah. I think, I think that from one rocket scientist to another, and uh, between the two, the two intellects that they have, that the conversation was relatively short. So, you know, when you're dealing with, when you have two people who are dealing with, you know, absolute constraints in the physical world, and they're able to communicate on, on that level, you know, those levels of what's possible and what's not possible. I think that, uh, I think that that was a relatively short conversation. So I'm ha I'm happy about it. There's definitely, you'll definitely get no no gripes from me. I mean, it's a huge step forward in adoption because, as other people have said, um, it's a it's a giant touch point for the people that have heard about Bitcoin over the years, and now it's on Tesla's balance sheet. I mean, for good or bad, you know, however Tesla does its business. Um, you know, it's, it's something that's really hard to avoid discussing or for that matter, for, you know, the media, the, the financial news media to brush off. Um, I think uh, uh, Ross Stevens presentation with uh, Michael Saylor and their Bitcoin for corporations in the macro environment. I, I really think that that hit 
I think it'll hit home for a lot of companies just because of the growth that they've been having. And it's one of those things where uh, I can't remember who said it. It's just, it's now it's the domino effect of you got to get in and don't be the last one. You know, you don't want to be the last one through the door to say, well, we, we just put Bitcoin on our balance sheet. So, um, you know, buy up our stock or whatever, but. Yeah, I, I think at this point, after watching uh, MicroStrategy's stock rally like 230%, uh, these S&P 500 companies are going to have trouble uh, not adopting Bitcoin. And, you know, I, it's interesting, like, as I'm thinking more about, um, you know, your ideas of, of Bitcoin urbanism, I, I, that, that sounds like a long-term thing, like something that you might be like 50 years ahead of. Um, Whereas like, it, I think a lot of people underestimate Bitcoin in some ways and overestimate it in other ways. Um, as far as like, you know, fiat, it, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Um, though, I mean, to, to some extent, I think that'd be nice um, if it did um, because people would be benefiting a lot more from a Bitcoin standard, but um, at the same time, uh, you know, the infrastructure is not built out. Like we're just at the very beginning of things like Bitcoin is only 12 years old and, you know, the internet at 12 years old was, you know, barely a fraction of what it is today. Um, I mean, even, I know I I was there, (laughs) I mean, even looking like 10 years ago, um, at YouTube and, what was on there compared to like the quality content that we see today where, and, and all of the content is just unbelievable. Um, uh, looking at how fast things progress, but it is a, it is a steady, steady, slow progression. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it is really interesting to think about. Well, and I think from, you know, for the perspective of Bitcoin urbanism, I know you're, saying that it's like 50 years out, but one of the things with the development model that is prevalent prevalent today, you know, it's called the suburban experiment is that in order to afford the suburban experiment, you have to continuously build out further on the edges of cities and you have to build more. So it's a, it's a compounding deal. It's essentially it's a Ponzi scheme. That's what Charles Marone refers to it as on his uh, website, Strong Towns and his organization. So that in order to afford, you know, the past development that you've done in a city, you have to build more on the outskirts and not only just more, you have to do increasingly more over time. Uh, so, you know, typically in the physical world, since, you know, we live in meat space and humans tend to beat things up over time, all of the infrastructure for that development built in, you know, between let's say 19, uh, we'll use round years, 1950 to 1975. All of that goes bad after approximately 25 years. You've got to replace sewer pipes, water pipes, um, streets, sidewalks, all that stuff has to be replaced. So how do you afford to do that? Well, either that property has to create enough wealth enough you know enough money for the city so that they can go and replace it without losing money or if it doesn't 
then they have to have new money coming in to backfill their obligations to you know, replace the sidewalk in front of the house that was built in 1950. So if you take that forward, you know, the house that was built in 1950, all of that stuff has to re be replaced by 1975. And then it has to be replaced again in 2000. And then it has to be replaced again in 2025, right? So this life cycle continues. Um, if you get to the point to where you have three life cycles, not only are you replacing everything that was built like around in 2000, um, where you had just a, you had a giant expansion in the 90s, and then you had an even bigger expansion in the 2000s. You have to replace all the stuff that came before it too. You know, even over the century, you know, dating back to if you're in like New York City, you've got to go back to basically the beginning of time. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but you've got to go back to 300 years and you've got all the stuff that you've got to deal with. So it only gets more expensive as you go. Um, and I think when, when, you, when we have a fiat standard and you have a central bank that's constantly printing, printing money, providing cheaper debt, uh, stuff like that, cities are able to get away with it only because the numbers are being masked, right? So the, the, the growth that's happening right now in the edge of Phoenix will pay for all sorts of infrastructure issues closer towards the center. So subdivisions built 50 years ago will get new pavement, new sidewalks and stuff as, as needed, but it's only being paid for because 60 miles the other direction, somebody's building a new subdivision. So the fees that are acquired from the city for that go to pay for you know old infrastructure that should be self-sustaining. Unfortunately, it's not. So with Bitcoin, assuming that there's some sort of hyper-Bitcoinization, even if it's in the next you know 50 years, um, it's going to kind of reset the pricing mechanism. And it's also going to force municipalities to realize that, A, their liabilities are much greater than they think they are. And B, the land that those liabilities are serving, the services, sewer, water, all that stuff, transportation, that land doesn't, you know, that house doesn't provide enough income to the city to even remotely cover what the cost of replacing that infrastructure is. Yeah, that's a problem. That, that is really interesting uh, to look at. And, you know, the, the government likes to do that, those types of Ponzi schemes. Um, I would, I had uh, last year, I had um, some people on from this uh, think tank called Truth and Accounting, and they go and audit all the local governments and state governments and, and across the board. And, and one of the, just the incredible things that they do is, um, they like you were talking about the masking the liabilities that they have they um uh when they borrow money they they uh list it as revenue on their balance sheets um so it looks like if you read their reports i, I went and did this recently I, went, I read the 2019 report for tucson and it looks like they're okay but what they're not including is like the pensions um and all the other expenses that they have, um, which are very, very unfunded. And it is 
it is pretty crazy um, for sure. Uh, so yeah, as far as like a Bitcoin standard, what do you think about um, the idea of going and building a Citadel community up in Nevada and forming your own government? Uh, that's interesting. Um, I've been to Nevada. There's even less to see in the Arizona desert. So I would much rather stay here in Phoenix uh, and build, I guess uh, I've called it the Copper Citadel. Love to do that. But, um, you know, I think in time, the Citadel is an excellent concept simply because to me, it's a return to a more natural and freer state of people, uh, whether that's they're acting in their communities or as city states. I think that um, essentially that's, that's what it is. It's one of the first opportunities where people can act without, you know, coercion of money in the form of whether it's inflation or a central minting authority, all that. So yeah, no, I've, I've heard about it. I think it's pretty funny. I mean, unless they're going to, you know, Northern Nevada where I can go skiing, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I drove through Nevada last year and I was amazed at how beautiful it was. Um, but yeah, it is pretty sparse as far as, um, yeah, there's just, there's just nothing there. It, it's good. It's cool to look at, but I, I feel like it'd be pretty tough to, to live in. I, I heard somewhere like, uh, well, I'm not going to throw a number out because I'll probably misrepresent it, but a very large portion is owned by the federal government. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a little bit different. It's about 88%. Yeah. I mean, my, my dream Citadel um, would be to buy like an old decommissioned uh, Titan missile silo. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in one of those, but they're pretty sweet. No, I've seen photos. Yeah. yeah. We, we've got one out here that you could tour. Um, yeah. It's like, I don't know, like 12 stories deep of just awesome. Awesome. So speak, speaking of Nevada and, uh, the Bitcoin standard, the real question is, what does Area 51 look like on a Bitcoin standard? Yeah. You know, funny story. I, I don't think I said this on the <laughs> podcast yet, but I went down for the raid um, just to kind of... Did you really? Yeah. Just to um, people watch, and it was a lot of fun. I um, didn't know a whole lot about the history of it before, but I crammed and uh, was able to keep up and have some interesting conversations. And actually got on the show ancient aliens um did you really just, yeah just spewing some nonsense um i'm not i'm not like anti-alien but i i just feel like there's um the more i've looked into it it's pretty apparent that the government just loves to like um sow disinformation around it and and you know they have these these plants that cooperate with these people and yeah I, I feel like most of the it's one of those things that you can't really definitively know um as a normal do you person. think uh pomp do you think pomp is a plant he's always asking all of his uh his uh his guests you know if they believe in aliens he's pumping out the alien propaganda yeah i i mean i don't think he i i think he's pretty open-minded about it um no, the people that are the plants are the ones that like supposedly definitively have answers and say like there's ah. aliens here and like there was a there's a whole story I just went out to White Sands, New Mexico pretty recently and there was um uh some crazy story of some guy like 
listening into the radio communications with the base and, and saying that there were aliens and they put somebody with him and pretty much made him go crazy because they kept on feeding him all this nonsense. So that's, that's kind of what I'm basing um, that off of. But yeah, I, I mean, the, the one pl- guy I definitely think is a plant, I'm not an expert on this and I don't look into it. It's like one of those things I, I enjoy to like fall asleep to and um, keep an open mind about, but not take too seriously. But uh, Tom DeLong from uh, Blink-182, that guy. Really? Oh, yeah. He, he's like full full on alien dude. And I totally think it's just a bunch of misinformation nonsense. Um, but yeah. The feds got to him, huh? Dude, the feds get to everybody. That's why yeah, we need to, to be FBI decentralized. Agents listening. Well, you know, that was an interesting story. I heard from one of the guys that was involved with the Phoenix meetup scene that the feds infiltrated and busted some guy for the um, peer-to-peer Bitcoin transactions. They like entrapped him over, um, I'm not sure if you've heard about that. The, Fe- the fed- No, went I don't remember sa- reading about it. Yeah, um, I don't know a lot about it, um, and I didn't ask a lot about it, but um, yeah, I guess the Fed sat down with him. It was like, are you okay with buying this, even if it was from illegal activities? Oh, I do remember that. That was uh, that was like 2019, and he was, he was basically, well, he admitted to um, avoiding, I think he admitted to avoiding taxes, and then making the bitcoin originally from uh drug sales but yeah no i remember that it was a it was a sting and they've they they handheld him into basically admitting saying that yeah we're gonna buy this bitcoin from you for you know two hundred thousand dollars knowing that you got it through criminal activity and you're okay with that and he's just like yeah let's do it screw the feds it's like (laughs) major oof a good lesson for for people is uh well probably not good to engage in illegal activities but i i don't know at this point it's impossible not to with everything's just illegal but um yeah don't don't it's just just best to say that you lost your bitcoin in a boating accident or something yes that's correct up at lake pleasant that's a good place to lose your bitcoin either that or the, it's uh i i left my um what is it i left my cold card at the lost dutchman mine so if you find it you know please return it to me i'd appreciate that (laughs) that's a good one yeah where where are some good places people can follow your work well so i'm on twitter relatively active at k-t-l-a-n-n-a-n and then uh, my substack is bitcoinurbanism.substack.com awesome i'll make sure to to post those in the link well i really appreciate you coming on this is fun yeah thank you for having me i appreciate it and that was a great conversation with kelly um yeah there's so much to take away from this interview it when when you get into the nuts and bolts of things and and really see how things are operating and, and what's being done in government what's being done financially economically it's pretty terrifying you know it's a system built to benefit a select few and it's working really well at that you know and it's working at the expense of of normal people and that's that's why i got into bitcoin is i saw this is our chance to really create a better future um 
you know, I mean, just the idea of like sustainable cities built on a Bitcoin standard is is amazing. You know, it's an incredible idea. Um, and uh, yeah, I was really grateful for Kelly to come on. But yeah, um, the learning curve for Bitcoin is pretty steep. It, it is something that requires you to learn things that you probably didn't know that you didn't know. Um, so like to understand Bitcoin, you have to have like a decent understanding of economics. You have to have some understanding of cryptography, some understanding of uh, um, computer science to really like get this thing. And there's so many good resources out there, but it takes work to do that. Um, one of the best ways to learn about Bitcoin, though, is to go to Bitcoin meetups. Uh, I've been working with Brian Harrington, uh, and he, man, that guy is awesome. He just has so much energy. He, he's one of the founders of the Orange County uh, Bitcoin meetup, and there's so much good energy out there. And we're bringing it to Arizona. We've got events happening up in Phoenix with the Arizona Bitcoin Network, and uh, events down here in Tucson with uh, the Tucson Bitcoin meetup check it out you know and if you're a lone wolf in some small arizona city reach out to me tucson bitcoin at uh, protonmail.com i'd love to uh lend my support however i can um but yeah i mean we have the opportunity right now to get bitcoin into the hands of people that need it you know and, and really have um can benefit greatly from it you know and it's not like there's uh a boat that's leaving uh, the dock, but man, our financial system is so broken. And every day that people are fully living in it and not embracing something so much better is a day that they're missing out, you know, and, and losing. Uh, it, it's not just about getting rich, you know, it's about protecting the value that you create, and it's about being a part of something that is is moral and, and just overall superior. Like the, the Ponzi scheme of, uh, that, that we're seeing in, in the stock market and just the way that our government works, it, it's actually harmful. Um, so yeah, uh, hope you have a good one.